Welcome to Equipus Christchurch. Equipus Church is a whole lot of friends championing one another to go higher in Christ. For more details, check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch. David's story really begins where every story in the Bible begins, which is Genesis. Right? That's where it all really starts. Genesis, where we have heaven and, and earth, God and humanity together in union. As God made us to be this relationship where, where we're walking and talking with God in the garden. This way that things are meant to be. But, but all too soon in the Genesis story, we see conflict entering the story and sin creating a separation in the union. But then we see redemption of that conflict as we read on in the Bible, start on Mount Sinai. As God calls a, a people, God selects Israel as a people to house the return of God, of, of His presence to humanity. And, and this, this return begins with the construction of the tabernacle, a, a tent which was made to very specific instructions in which God's presence would dwell amongst His people. I just did a very quick summary of some you know, large books of the Bible, but, but this moment, this story reaches its kind of climax in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 14 to 17. This is that moment I alluded to earlier of David entering Israel as king. But, but something we maybe don't realize when we read this story is seven years before this, before David's entrance into the city, he's actually anointed as king of Israel. Samuel says God's chosen you to lead the nation when he is young, but he's anointed seven years before this happens, but his pathway to the throne wasn't easy. And that's me kind of selling David a little bit short of what he went through, right? Israel's first king, Saul, was so threatened by, by David that he spent much of his time going from town to town, place to place, looking for David so that he could kill him so that David couldn't become king after him which is one way of eliminating the political opposition, yeah? Like, I'm glad that we live in a different place and time for the sake of our politicians. Like, it gets the job done, but it's not super great for your society. And then finally, after Saul's death, David is anointed as king. It's, hey, David, it's your time to, to rule. And, and David's like, it's, it's all good to go. It's all ready. And we kind of, we know this bit of the story, but we skip over this little bit that happens. We're like, yeah, and then David becomes king and it's all good. Except for Saul's son, not Jonathan, the good one, right? The best character in all the Bible. I think we'd all agree. Anyone named Jonathan is named after the best character in the Bible. We have consensus. Good. Moving on. Not Jonathan, but the name I'm really glad when my parents were choosing names from the Bible that they didn't call me this one, uh, Ishbosheth, which it, you know, like again, it just doesn't roll off the tongue quite as well as Jonathan. Uh, for whatever reason, it didn't get picked up and used in Western culture. But uh, Ishbosheth is one of Saul's sons, and, and he doesn't think that David should be king. He kind of picks up his his father's thinking, and so he occupies the palace by force, surrounding it with his militia, and so David spends seven years living in the countryside, anointed as king, but not yet king, as an imposter sleeps in his bed. And, and, and it's in these seven years that David has plenty of time to think about what he'll do when it all works out, what he'll do when finally he becomes king. We've all, we've all had those daydreams, right? Maybe not about becoming king. Although maybe you've thought, this is what I would do if I was prime minister. Maybe you've had those thoughts. In which case, I hope wasn't, one of those thoughts wasn't, I'd kill all of my enemies. In which case, I'm glad you were not prime minister if that was one of your thoughts. But maybe you thought, man, I w what would I do? And again, maybe it's just me. But what would I do if, you know, you, if I had like an estranged, eccentric, rich uncle I never knew who died and left me as millions, what would I do? 
Anyone ever kind of pondered that sort of thing? Like just a lazy Sunday afternoon? Or, or maybe, you know, a little bit uh, more realistic, grounded in reality. What would I do if I had superpowers? Right? Like if I could... No, it's just, just me, right? That's an insight into the, the, the workings of, of my brain. But, but the, we, daydreaming is in human nature, and which kind of makes what David thinks about, and what more than just David thinks about, what David plans, all the more shocking. Right? David, for seven years, has plenty of time to daydream. What would I do when I'm finally anointed king? What would I do when I can finally come into my city and assume my rightful place on my throne? This, this long-awaited parade, his coronation, David's triumphal entry, it's shocking, and it's shocking in four distinct ways. It's shocking because of what's being sung, what he's wearing, what he's doing, and where he's going. We'll put those up on the screen, and, and let me show you. Let's place ourselves in the, the streets of Jerusalem that day. You imagine you're there. Close your eyes. Right, you're wearing some sort of robe. It's itchy because we haven't figured out, like, fine cotton quite yet, so just feel a little bit uncomfortable. Are you wearing underwear? Aren't you wearing underwear? You know, probably not, but don't dwell on that too much. You're in church, right? But there you are. That was funnier than you responded. I'm just letting you know. <laughs> You'll think about it later. Like 2 p.m. today, you'd be like, that was funny. John is a funny guy. Anyway, back to the story. Uh, <laughs> there you are, right? You're in Jerusalem. Open your eyes or else you'll go to sleep. Not because I'm boring, just because it's very restful. My dulcet tones, right? They told me I had a voice. Anyway, uh, before you saw anything, before anything appears, you hear the army coming. There you are. You're in Jerusalem. You're ready for the new king to come entering. And, and before you see anything, you hear them. They're, they're marching and they're singing a song. Not just any song. They're singing a song that David has written. The song lives in our Bibles today. We find it in Psalm 24, verses 7 to 10. This is some of it. It says this, Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Like, yeah, that's a good song for a coronation, right? Like, here comes the king. This is a good king. This is a promised king. This is a good song for a royal parade. It, it sounds fitting, doesn't it? Here comes the king. But, but it continues. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. And you're like, if you're hearing it, you're like, wait, wait a second. I thought this was David's coronation. I thought this was David's royal parade. Why are we singing... Who is this king that we're singing about? Who is this Lord strong and, and mighty? Who is this Lord mighty in battle? David's not the king of glory coming in. See, David here, he, he enters to a, a song of praise, a song that he wrote, but he is not the king that the song is praising. It's praising God. It's praising Yahweh, the Lord Almighty. He is the king of glory. And so you hear them coming and you're a little bit confused, like, oh, this is weird that he's praising God when he's walking in for his coronation, but, but that's fine. And then you start to see them coming, the parade, the, the seven-year wait is over, here comes the king, and you'd be ready to be entertained. You'd expect the army to be shown off, a, a parade to dazzle and, and impress, all culminating in the king carried on his throne, resplendent in royal robes, at the very back of the parade, the crowning kind of moment, that's how King Saul would have entered. That's what the crowds have gathered to see. But as you hear the parade coming, the first thing you see is not the army. It's David. It's this new king at the front of the parade, and he's not wearing a, a royal robe, and he's not sitting majestically on a throne. He's in a linen ephod, and he's, he's dancing. You're like, that is weird. 
We have a weird new king. Can we, can we do like a redraw? Like this, um, this, where's Ishbosheth? Let's go find him. How's he doing? Right? Like this is an odd, an ephod was a priestly garment. But it's not the dignified outer robe of a, of a priest. It's, it's what the priest wore under the dignified robe. It's a priest's underwear. Right? David is symbolically saying to the people, I'm not a king who's come to sit on a throne. I'm a priest who's coming to lead you into God's presence. But I'm not just a priest. I am the least of all the priests. I'm not even worthy to wear the robe and the tassels. So here comes the new King David singing a praise to God and dancing in a priest's underwear. And then at the back of the float, at the back of the parade, there is a float. But, but instead of the throne with David sitting on it, it's holding the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was a wooden box that was carried by Israel throughout the Exodus story, symbolizing God's presence with them. It, it was the Ark that was with them in the wilderness when they were following fire and clouds, surviving on manna. When they crossed the Jordan River, it was the ark that went through ahead of them, causing the waters to part. But the ark had been lost. It had been abandoned by King Saul in a foreign field when, when life got comfortable and then hard. And so David hunts down the ark, and he places it on the throne, and he's saying, God is the true king, and he is on the seat of honor. Back at the back of the parade, he is in the place of honor. David is a dancing priest celebrating God's return to his people. So, so, so you're watching and you're shocked, right? You, you can't believe what you're seeing. As, as David, in, in, in all of this weirdness, this holy foolishness, doesn't even go to the palace. Like, David, just get to the palace and hide your face. You're embarrassing. Literally what his wife says. Right, but instead he goes to the, the center of the city where, where a tent is set up. Not, not a temple, ornate and beautiful, a, a tent, like Moses' tent of meeting, a, a tabernacle where Moses met with God. It's, it's a prayer tent. And David puts the ark in this tent and he calls it a, a tabernacle. See, David's big idea, that the culmination of seven years of waiting, of dreaming, of scheming and, and planning was, what if we put up a tent? Which, I mean, not to judge the guy, but like, are there bigger things that you could think to do? Like, nothing fancy, just a common tent. Just right in the middle of everything, a tent where anyone and everyone can come and worship and pray. And then David goes to the palace and he lays out his plan. He goes in and he sits down with his advisor and he says, hey, here's what I want. I want to hire 292 worship leaders, prophets, and elders to pray and worship in the tent all day long, night and day, constant praise and worship. That's 1 Chronicles 25. Just to be clear, David is a king leading a nation during a time of war. There are enemies literally on the hills. He's just pushed out. Uh, an imposter on his throne, right? There are people within his nation and outside of his nation who are opposing his rule. He is in the middle of conflict and he empties the royal savings account on prayer. Like, imagine being in that meeting when he laid out the strategic plan. Like, David, what, what are you gonna do? What's the, what's the plan? How are you gonna come in as king? And he's like, I'm gonna spend all of our money on praise and worship. It's like, David, buddy, maybe you spent too long in the cave when you were throwing stones, did one like bounce off the sling and hit you in the head as well? Like, what, what is this idea here? What, how are we going? Love what you're thinking with the prayer tent. Love, you know, yeah, Moses and that stuff. That's, that's fun. That's great. But how do you feel about 20 worship leaders? 
that's a lot. You can get some six-part harmonies going on. People can do some prophecy. That it, because we kind of got, we got enemies camping on the hills. David Fritch puts it this way. He's a theologian who's written a book about this. He says, the presence of God was David's political strategy. And then, for 33 years, the 33 years of David's reign as king, there was a tent, a tabernacle for worship and prayer right at the center of the city. And in this tent, a good chunk of the Psalms were written. The prayers that taught Israel to pray for for generations to come. The prayers that Jesus used as a guide for his own prayers. And the prayers that he taught the disciples. The prayers that to this day we put to music and sing in church. Jesus quotes the Psalm more than any other book in the Bible when people ask him about his ministry to explain what he is doing. The prayers of David written in that tent go on to become the explanations of Jesus. See, so I think it's fair to say that what's inside that tent, something good is happening. Right? Something is going on inside that tent. If you're writing prayers that Jesus used, we're all like, good job. It's pretty good effort. But, but it's interesting because it doesn't just stop there. Let me illustrate what I mean with a, with a detour. If you read the book of Amos, as we all do, right? Amos, it's one of our favorite books in the Bible. You're like, there's a book in the Bible called Amos? There is. Uh, it's, a, it's a prophet, and it's not super fun reading, so I'll uh, summarize it for you, and you can come back to it later. Just know this. It ends better than it starts. The book of Amos, the, the prophet Amos, for, for eight chapters, eight of the nine chapters, he's, he's rebuking the nation of Israel. He says something to the equivalent of, go, of you're going to the temple and you're offering sacrifices and prayer and worship, but, but you've compartmentalized your spirituality. You, you've forgotten what this is all about. You're, you're doing all the right things, but you've lost the heart of it. You're, you've forgotten the poor outside. You're going to the temple. You're doing the right things, but, but it's not spilling out. It's staying contained in the temple. And, and then at the very end of the book, Amos brings this prophecy, Amos 9, 11. He says, in that day, God will restore David's fallen shelter. God will restore David's tent, his his tabernacle. Which is confusing if you're reading the book of Amos, because it kind of seems like for eight chapters previously, he's been talking about how prayer and worship are not enough. And then his solution seems to be, hey, let's pray and worship a different way. It's a little bit of whiplash. Like, Amos, buddy, I thought you were talking about the fact that this wasn't enough, that this needed to be more than prayer and worship. And now you're saying the solution to this is just a certain, like, is it just that you only like songs written in the, like, we've all talked to those people, right? You know, God just moves in church when we just, there's a certain era of Darlene Sheck. It's just an anointing. You can't argue with it, right? I'm not arguing with you. We all have experienced it, right? When, we won't go there. Like, it seems like a weird preference. I like David's older stuff better. It's just that was really, was really close to the heart of God, you know? And we're modernized and just lost it. When he started using synths, I just don't like it anymore, David. Like, why would a certain, why would David's tent help? Why would a, a certain approach to prayer and worship? Well, because David's tabernacle was the beginning of a biblical pattern. That the most powerful prayer is always incarnated prayer. 
There's always prayer that is lived out, not just something that we talk about, not just words that we say, but, but when we put to action the prayers that we are praying. See, pragmatically speaking, David's reign was the nation's high point any way that you measure it throughout all of history. There was peace and safety in the city. There was prosperity in the economy. There was care for the poor. A nation that was previously divided and went on to be divided again was for one moment in history mended and reunified. Tyler Staden, uh, in his book, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools, puts it this way. He says, it seems that when you prioritize prayer in the church, you get the kingdom in the city. See, that's why Amos says that God's response to a nation that is in desperate need, that is encountering inequality, is a people who seek God. Not because seeking God is a way of avoiding doing something about the myriad of problems that we might see, but because a people who pray. A people who really pray, pray in such a way that they live out their prayers. See, to land this in a modern example, Mother Teresa refused to be called an activist. She served the poorest of the poor her whole life and founded a new order based around that humble type of service. But she explained herself and her order in this way. She said, our mission is only and entirely to minister to Jesus which we do primarily through worship and prayer. Sounds like a whole lot like David's tabernacle, yeah? She goes on to say, secondarily, we go on ministering to Jesus by recognizing the face of Jesus in the faces of the poor and the lost and caring for them. I was tempted just to put that quote up and not preach a sermon. Just be like, let's go. Right, we go on ministering to Jesus by recognizing the face of Jesus in the faces of the poor and the lost and caring for them. See, a house of prayer, what Jesus came to restore, was never intended to simply stay in the house. By its nature, when we encounter Jesus, we go out. We spent weeks looking at this, right? We are called, we are commissioned to follow Jesus, and that leads us to loving others, to bringing something of heaven to earth. The whole reason I've been excited for this series is I've got a dream for us as a church that we would be a people who are centered around prayer, that we would be a people who are centered around prayer, people who always start with prayer, but then always end in mission. That prayer would not be separate from works. That prayer would not mean that we cloister ourselves away in, in four walls and have some sort of self-indulgent spiritual experience, but that we encounter God, that we are ministered to, that we are filled up, that we are healed and made whole, that we go out in our brokenness, but that we go. That a people who encounter God cannot help but take on something of who God is. Otherwise, we're not encountering God. We're encountering something of ourself made large. Something of our preference. Something of our own self-indulgence. Our own going through the motions, feeling good about ourselves. Scratching an itch. Telling ourselves that, that it's enough to ignore the problems outside. This isn't a, a message to make us feel guilty. It's simply to acknowledge the biblical pattern that a people who are filled in prayer don't stay in the building. See, so that's David's story, that David would bring the presence of God back into the city, back to a people who had, who had lost it, and that it transformed the nation. It's David's story, and I think it's a pretty good one, and it brings us to part two, to, to Jesus' story. See, shortly after David dies, the, the tabernacle is turned into a temple from canvas uh, to brick and mortar, and, and it feels like progress, and for some time it, it was. It's a good thing, right? In both Exodus 40 and 1 Kings chapter 8, God's presence is depicted as a cloud. In the first, God's presence fills the, uh, the tabernacle like a cloud. 
And in the second, in 1 Kings, God's presence fills the temple, which is the tabernacle made permanent like a cloud. It's, it's this beautiful depiction of God's presence taking up resonance with his people. It's these moments of, of kind of crowning, wow, this is what it's all about within the Bible. But, but as beautiful as that picture is, there's an equally tragic picture that comes a little bit later in the narrative. In Ezekiel chapter 10, it says this, And a cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord rose from above the cherubim and moved to the threshold of the temple. Like, Jono, what does that mean? Those are words, but I don't understand them. Like, why is the cloud, was it windy? What is the cloud doing? Right, to translate what's going on here, this is the, the same cloud of God's presence. But here in Ezekiel's vision, the, the cloud is moving from the innermost room towards the exit. The cloud of God's presence is moving from within the temple and it is leaving. Ezekiel is saying the temple is no longer the place that God is presencing himself because something has gone wrong in the temple. If we skip ahead to, to verse 18, it says this, Then the glory of the Lord departed over the threshold of the temple. Translation, God has left the building. See, see here's what's going on here. Ezekiel is saying, hey, the temple is still going. In fact, it's going quite well. Right, like attendance is at an all-time high, the budget's looking good, there's tons of activity. We're selling more doves than ever before. There's just one problem. God's not there anymore. The temple is going well. Attendance is high, budget is good. Everything looks like it should look, but God is not there anymore. So here we have a tent, a tent where God's presence is spilling life into the streets outside. A tent where the way in which people are coming to God is landing in such a way that it is transforming not just their lives, but the lives of the city that they live in. And in comparison, we have a thriving temple without the presence of God. See, in an era of comfort, Saul abandoned the Ark of the Covenant and then he carried on with business as usual apart from God. And in a new era of comfort, the priests are carrying on church services and readings and prayers, and it's all business as usual apart from God, and no one seems to notice. Almost no one. There is that one guy, Amos, right, who, who promises that God will do again what he did then, and he will send another king like David who will do what David did, except this king, this coming king, will do it permanently in a way that cannot be taken away, and that brings us to the life of Jesus. John chapter one, verse 14 says this, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Now, now this word here translated in English as dwelling is the ancient Greek skeneo, which means to set up your tent or, or tabernacle. The, the most direct translation of John one is that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. See, that the word is, is intentional. See, the, the Old Testament pattern is build a tabernacle, build a tent, build a place of meeting, and God fills it. And then John describes Jesus as a tabernacle filled with God's presence. He is the living, breathing, walking, talking tabernacle. Jesus, John is saying Jesus is David's tent with, with flesh and, and body. And now notice how, the, how Jesus' birth and then does the the rest of the gospel, uh, sorry, the rest of his story is described by the other gospel authors who are making the same connection. Mark 1, uh, Matthew 1, 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. 
Luke 1, 32 to 33, he'll be great and he'll be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. In Matthew 12, the crowd begin to uh, recognize Jesus in Matthew's gospel and they begin to make the same connections. They say, all the people were astounded and said, could this be the son of David? See, seven days before his death, Jesus came into Jerusalem. He came into Jerusalem as king, just like David did. It's, a, it's another triumphal entry, just like David's entry into the city as the anointed king. Jesus comes in, and it's just as shocking for all the same reasons as the first one. What is being sung, what he's wearing, what he's doing, and where he's going. See, so David's army sang Psalm 24, a praise anthem, and as Jesus enters, the crowds chant by the roadside, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna, that's a political statement about a savior who's come to reign. The crowd are saying, here comes the king, a new king, the one in the line of David. Then David wore a priest's undergarments. Jesus came disguised in a peasant's rags. David entered not on a throne at the back of the parade, but at the front, dancing like a holy fool. Jesus enters a colt, a small donkey, fit for a child, so small that as he rides on it, his feet were likely dragging on the ground. He looks ridiculous. But there he rides into the city. Here comes the new king looking foolish, but it's a, it's a holy kind of foolishness. See, I wonder, is this starting to feel a little familiar? That David came to a people who had lost the heart of God to restore praise and worship in the middle of a city that it would flow out and transform the nation in all the ways that they ached for. And Jesus came into a city in the middle of a a people who were trying to do all the right things but had lost the heart of what it was about, a temple in which God had left And he comes in dressed in a way that they don't expect him to be dressed. As something is sung that they don't expect to be sung. As he rides a donkey looking foolishness. And then finally the destination of each parade. David takes the ark into the empty tabernacle. Granting access to God to to his tabernacle. His tabernacle had no gates, no qualifications and no restrictions. The only other time in history in which anyone was allowed into what was the temple. And Jesus takes his body that the presence of God straight into the empty temple, a temple that was crowded with restrictions and rules and rituals and commerce, everything except for God's presence. And there he restores access for everyone. Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 to 14 says this, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. And then this, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. See, we we jump over that because we don't realize the last time that the blind and the lame were welcomed into the temple was David's tabernacle. That the blind and the lame were seen as blind and lame because of sin in them, because of something wrong in them. That the broken were kept outside of the church. But Jesus comes and he says, that's the wrong way. We've gotten it entirely backwards. I came to bring the gospel. I came to bring sight to the blind, to bind up the brokenhearted, to make the lame walk, to free the captives. I came to do what Isaiah talked about, the king of David coming to do. And so Jesus walks in and everyone is invited back to the tabernacle. 
Everyone is welcome in the temple. And what Jesus started that day, he finishes seven days later at his crucifixion when the temple curtain, that physical barrier that separated holy from unclean people was torn top to bottom. The symbolism is obvious that all are welcome. Look, I'm done as the, as the band joins me to hopefully pull this all together. David's story was about putting God at the center of a nation. David's story was about putting God at the center of a nation. Jesus' story was about God coming to us. To bring me to the third part of the story, that's, that's our story. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? See, there's still a tabernacle. There's still a place where God's glory dwells. And it's not this building. It's not these four walls. It's not a special place in time. It's, it's you. We are dwelling places of God. Because in the end, this is not a story about a tent or a building. This is a story about a people. Jesus was not cleansing the temple to get the building tidied up. It's not like, hey, look, you put that in the wrong place and it's really meant to be over there. Jesus is cleansing the temple to win intimacy back. See, to sum up this entire series as we go through it, what is it about at its heart? Intimacy with God. That we are called to be a house of prayer. That we collectively, but that we individually. That because of who Jesus is, because of what He's done and continues to do in us through His Holy Spirit, we can meet with God. We can walk with God that the temple curtain is torn in half, that there are no longer ins and outs, but that all are welcome, that intimacy has been won for us. And see, the beauty of Amos's prophecy is that it was brought to life in the early church. It was brought off the pages of Scripture and into the real world. It came alive in, in secret meetings and underground Roman basements and, and communities formed around prayer, and the kingdom spilled out to transform the world in ways that we have never seen before. And the tragedy of Amos's prophecy is that after David, the next generation of political advisors, they, they rewrote the budget. They went back to the same old productivity and military strategy, and the nation fell apart. See, after Jesus reenacted David's dramatic entrance in his own triumphal entry, the very priests who witnessed it the very ones who could recite the facts of David's tabernacle from memory, they weren't the ones who were in the Roman basements. The ones who could have, who should have seen it, they, they missed it. And instead of joining in what God was doing in a new way, they were the ones who picked up the coins and put them back in the cash register. They were the ones who, who, who got the doves and put them back in the cages. They were the ones who took the temple curtain and just sewed it back up. They just kept on going. See, the temple's nice. God's not here. But it's familiar. It's comfortable. We can control it. Church, can I say that can't be us? We cannot be a people who, who settle for anything but the presence of God. We will sacrifice everything else. Lights, comfy chairs. I'm sorry if you're enjoying the chair. Mentos, even the Mentos. The only thing we need is the presence of God. 
the only thing that we need to be is a people who are centered around prayer. See, I've got this dream for us as a church. Therefore, us to be a commissioned people. For us to be a people who truly live in what we say, the faith that we have, we need to be a house of prayer. And I want to say a yes to this kind of kingdom vision. It looks less like gritting our teeth and it looks more like a king dancing in a priest's underwear. It looks less like putting our nose to the grindstone and it looks more like Jesus smiling ear to ear on the back of a donkey, half his weight. It looks less like intensity and it looks a lot more like joy. And when I say prayer, I don't just mean listing requests, what we might know as intercessory prayer. I do mean that, but I also mean gratitude and I mean praise and I mean adoration and I mean confession and I mean contemplative silence. There's a variety of expressions to explore and that's our plan to say, hey, what could prayer look like? What maybe have we got in our mind that this is what prayer is and I've tried it and it hasn't landed for me and we could say, hey, maybe there's more to it than that. Maybe God wants to meet us where we're at. Maybe this isn't a performance. Maybe this isn't something to measure our own worth by. Maybe this is all about intimacy because we need to be a people of presence. And I don't just mean inside this building, I mean within us, within our bodies and our imaginations. We become people of prayer primarily not in our gatherings, but in our everyday lives. That we could learn to tabernacle in the language of Scripture. We've got to be the kind of people who say the church will not forget prayer. Because I think the hidden atheism of the church in our time is that we'll busy ourselves with anything, almost anything except prayer that it's hard, that it makes us uncomfortable, that it confronts something of our nature. And I'm not saying you have to jump at the idea. I'm not saying you're like, man, that's really exciting. I'm so glad I came to church today. Jono, your post on social media made this seem that it was going to be a lot better in terms of like a fun thing to do. And now I'm feeling kind of challenged. And to be honest, I didn't come to church to feel challenged. Uh, And so I'm just going to submit my feedback. I'm not saying you have to jump at this idea. It's okay if it seems a little bit daunting, but maybe the things that are good for us are not always easy to do. And I'm not saying that we're earning love or acceptance, that um, you know, we need to be very clear we're practicing from a place of being loved. But prayer is the ultimate expression of intimacy between a person and God. It is the already but not yet restoration of what was meant to be in Genesis. Prayer always starts with intimacy. And it would seem that when we prioritize prayer in the church, we get the kingdom in the city. A people who gather for prayer and worship but scatter, continuing to pray by recognizing the face of Jesus in the faces of their neighbors, their friends, their strangers and co-workers. Church, that's the story. A house of prayer. A people who are animated, filled, empowered, encouraged, ministered to, by the Spirit of God, that we do what we can and that we believe that God does what we can't. And so my question is simply, what if we prayed? And what if this week our first prayer was simply, God, restore the tabernacle of David and me and us. God, that we might walk with you, that we might rest in you, that we might delight in you. Why don't you stand to your feet? In a moment, the band's gonna lead us in a song. Before they do, I'd, I'd love to pray for us. But I want to put this out for you to think about just as the band starts to lead us. You might be thinking, Johnny, you just spoke about prayer. Now we're going to sing. What's St. Augustine says this. He who sings prays twice. It sounds like a riddle. It's not. 
It's, it's simply acknowledging that when we sing, one of the things that we can be doing is bringing sung prayers to God. That not every prayer you pray needs to be something that you invent, but that we can embrace something like the Psalms, that we can embrace a prayer liturgy that someone else has written for us, that we can put words in our mouth to express what our heart wants to say. And so maybe today as we begin this journey of what does it look like for us to embrace our identity as a house of prayer, as we close in singing and sung prayer, would you make this your prayer? Just as you close your eyes, just as you and God, whatever it takes for you to focus on, and what might it look for you to, to pray the song? Standing, sitting, hands raised, kneeling, whatever, what would it look like for you to make these words your prayer? I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna sing a prayer together. Jesus, we thank you that you're here. We thank you that you've always been here, but we choose now to be aware of you. God, now we're here too. God, we wanna be a people who are after your presence. God, if your presence doesn't come with us, we do not want to go. God, forgive us where we have made it about things other than you. Today, we choose to reorient, to get rid of the doves, to get rid of the coins, to rip that curtain afresh and say, God, we want your presence in a new way, in an empowering way, that we would know your love. God, be with us as we go from here be with us on this journey of exploring what is it for us as a church to be a people of prayer, for us as individuals to be a house of prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch.